pastors here. I'll be leading us through uh, this morning through the book of 2 Timothy chapter 2. Let's go ahead and open with a word of prayer. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you that you have given us your word, Lord, that you have told us about yourself, that you reveal more to us through its pages. We ask that you would guide our discussion this morning. We know that you are present with us. We ask that you would make your presence known as we study your word. In your name we pray. Amen. It's good to see everybody today. And it's good to have all y'all with us on KFUO out there beyond the walls of St. Paul's here. So we've started into a four-week series on 2 Timothy, and so last week you guys started in with chapter 1, this week the natural progression, then it's chapter 2. And so there are a lot of points here as we we see all of these little phrases that Paul strings together, and so we're going to have lots of time to pause and just meditate on these different things as he's giving Timothy instruction. And so we'll start at at verse 1. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And I'm going to stop right there uh, because there's just a couple things in this verse that I think are really uh, something we should talk about. One of them is this relationship that Paul has to Timothy. He says, my child. This is kind of a a parental father-son or a mentor-mentee relationship. And so he's writing him, encouraging him, giving him instruction here. Uh, But that's something that we see elsewhere as Paul writes. And so that's just that little word, that little phrase as he introduces this chapter, um, which he certainly would have put in in the Greek. I got no funny looks there. (laughs) Yeah. So if you guys don't know, the the chapter and verse divisions only came up uh, around the time of the King James Bible. Before that, there were no chapter or verse divisions. And in fact, in the Greek manuscripts, it just runs through. It looks like a whole ginormous compilation of lines of letters. Um, And that's why in the Greek language, there's certain letters that sometimes are there and sometimes aren't. There's one called the movable new because it kind of helped you understand that, wait, there's an end of a word here. (laughs) As it strings right into the next set of letters, it would be another word. But no, as Paul continues here, he says this, he calls Timothy his child, uh, and then he says, strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And so as we hear those words, that's where we look for strength as Christians. It's something that Paul is pointing out to Timothy, and it's something that we can take, even though this letter is to Timothy, that's something that we can learn from there as well. Um, Because all too often we look for strength in other places in our lives, or even sometimes we might look to the law of God for strength. We might say, well, I'm doing really good at keeping these parts of the law. Uh, But it's only in the grace that's in Christ Jesus that we as believers are strengthened. Um, and so as he opens it up, that, that encouragement there, I think is just a beautiful, beautiful statement to remind us where our strength comes from, that it's in Christ Jesus. In verse 2, and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. We should pause here too. I think. It's a good spot. So, entrust to faithful men. So, if, if we remember correctly, 
Timothy, this is a pastoral epistle or a pastoral letter. So this is instructions to Timothy. And uh, Paul's kind of saying, Timothy, you can't do this on your own. You need to delegate. You, you need to have others there that are a part of this. That's not healthy for you to conquer this task on your own uh, and entrust this to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And so that's an order for delegation or instruction for delegation, but this does more than lighten the load on Timothy as, as this is spread out and entrusted to faithful servants of Christ there in Asia, it also enables that spread of the gospel to continue. It's not just about Paul or Timothy, it's actually about Jesus, and so it's not, uh, it's not this um, situation where Timothy has to take on all the tasks and running all the aspects of the spread of the gospel. It's about Jesus, and so entrust it to faithful, faithful men. And this is something that was an issue in their time, and it's something that also can be an issue in our time, because when, um, when pastors don't delegate, when we try to take on all the things, or even us as Christians try to take on all the things, a couple of things happen. One of them is burnout, right? Just not good for anybody. But another thing that we see is, I would call it the cult of personality. Sometimes, if if a, a leader is not willing to share the load and they have to be that person in the center all the time, the people gathered there can start to see that person and not the gospel. And so entrusting this to faithful men, delegating this out, means that it's not just about Timothy, it's about the gospel and all of these people that Christ has called to faith share in passing that word on. Um, and so we have to we have to be mindful of that, not only in Asia Minor, you know, 2,000 years ago, but here in 21st century America. And we've seen that across the years uh, where you'll see these, where you'll see megachurch pastors that become this iconic personality and then something tragic happens and everything falls apart around them. Uh, and so delegation, sharing the burden as a body of Christ um, working towards the spread of the gospel is, is uh, the intent, right? It's not just, it's not just about me. <laughs> All right. And so we've got Paul addressing Timothy as a child, and he says, uh, he says these things about entrusting to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And then there's kind of a shift in his language, and he, starting at verse 3, and we'll go all the way through verse 7 here. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is a hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. So it's the shift in language from child to soldier, from child to soldier. And it says, no soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits. And his point is, the soldier is, is following direction, is doing what he's been called to do. The athlete that's competing in a competition, although we know that some athletes do cheat, the athletes compete according to the rules set forth by them. And so Paul is instructing Timothy to not get distracted by the pursuits of the world around you. Essentially, 
keep your eyes on the prize, fixed on Christ Jesus as you move forward. And don't get distracted by all of the things around you that are going to vie for your attention. That doesn't happen at all to us today, does it? Never. Right? No, that's... So, it's, a, it's a, this beautiful thing to understand the instruction that Paul is giving to Timothy, but then also see how that instruction applies in our daily walk as followers of Christ and to be able to admit, yes, yeah, sometimes things distract me. Some things just grab my attention. They might be more flashy for a moment, and so, you know, like a moth to a flame, we step over. But when we return to the Word of God and we're reminded that that's not where my attention is supposed to be. God has told me uh, what his desire is for my life, and I should be focusing on that as much as possible. All right, I'm going to pause for a second. This first seven verses is, is a paragraph, a unit of thought. So we're going to pause here. And Bud, you got a comment. Well, it almost appears that Timothy was having some some issues with his ministry. Uh, in the first chapter, Paul told him not to be afraid. And here, uh, he's being called upon to uh, pull himself back from these entanglements and mm-hmm. do what he was supposed to do. Right. Yes. Yeah. There's, you know, in the early church, which, I mean, this era of early church, there's a lot of things going on and not everybody is teaching rightly and not everyone is building up the body. And so it's easy to get caught up in these entanglements. And actually, as we go on in chapter two, Paul's going to talk a little more about this and what that looks like. And he'll even call out a couple of people that are problematic in Asia. Uh, and so, yeah, he's, it's, uh, the entanglements are real. <laughs> and Timothy does need to be reminded Step back. It'll be okay. Very good. Any other comments or questions on these first seven verses? Seeing none, we're going to go to verse 8. All right. Remember Jesus Christ. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel. Um, that's the nugget here, you guys. Remember Christ Jesus, risen from the dead. That is the fulfillment of our vocation as followers of Christ. To acknowledge that Jesus Christ and his completed work is sufficient for us. That's, that's it. And I know that seems really simple, but that at the same time as being really simple, that is an extremely hard thing for us uh, because we want a little bit of skin in the game. And this idea of Christ's completed work being sufficient for everything kind of runs contrary to our sinful hearts. And so right here, Paul's calling Timothy to remember his full and complete dependence on the completed work of Christ. We have to remember that if, if it's Jesus plus anything, that's not it. That's not the gospel. It is Jesus is sufficient. And whenever we try to make it Jesus and a little bit of me, in any way, shape, form, or fashion, we've missed the boat. And so 
This idea of, that Paul is, is putting forth here to Timothy, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of, the da- the offspring of David as preached in my gospel, is that's the nugget. Fulfilling your vocation as a Christian is trusting that Jesus is who he says he is and that his work on our behalf is complete. And Paul follows that up with, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God, the word of God is not bound. And so Paul acknowledges he's suffering, and we think that this letter is being written towards the end of his life. And so this is, uh, you know, he knows, he knows the end is coming, and he's bound in chains, and he's acknowledging that suffering comes. Uh, sometimes, especially in our, in our Western context, we view success as being the absence of suffering. If, if we're doing well at life, there shouldn't be suffering in my life, and that's not actually, it's not a biblical concept at all. Um, in fact, as we read through the gospel accounts and we listen to the words that Jesus says, we hear time and time again this idea of suffering before glory. Uh, and so, when we're called to faith, when we, are, when we are fixing our eyes on Christ, life's going to get hard. Um, and far harder for some than for others. And that's the attacks of Satan trying to convince you that God doesn't really love you that much. Or that's, maybe that's not completely true. But suffering doesn't mean the absence of, of God in our lives. And I can't remember if I said it in here, but I'm going to throw the quote out anyways. There's a book I read um, a while back, and uh, there was a quote that just stuck with me out of that book, it was, uh, out of that book. And, and it was uh, two Christians in this book. It's a true story. And the one gentleman says, when things become precious to God, they become very important to the devil. And it always stuck with me because it seems sometimes that when, when someone is called to faith, that suddenly something is working against that. And it might be very subtle in their lives, but suffering does come with that. And it can lead us to question, okay, I started following Jesus. I thought it was supposed to be all, you know, sunshine and roses. And suddenly, you know, my family's working against me or suddenly my, you know, my place of work is working against me or this bad thing has happened. Satan's goal is to cast doubt on Christ's love for you on the love of God for you in Christ Jesus. And so suffering is a part of following Jesus, and it looks different in every person's life. Um, Just because someone is economically well-to-do doesn't mean there's not suffering in their life. Um, Just because someone is impoverished doesn't mean they're suffering or not suffering. That's not what it's about. Um, But I want... I want you to hear me say that so that you don't see suffering as the absence of God in your life. God is always close by your side. And so Paul is bound. He's chained up. He's, he's, you know, in a prison. But he says the word of God is not bound. So no matter what comes, no matter what befalls us this side of his return, the word of God cannot be bound in any way, shape, form, or fashion. Um, it goes out, 
and it doesn't return to him without accomplishing the purpose for which he sent it. Um, no matter what, his will is done. Verse 10. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. So he endures all of this. All of this. This is kind of a picture into Paul's heart because he's in prison. And if you've ever seen pictures of a Roman prison, they're not awesome places. They don't look like an American jail or an American prison at all. Oftentimes they're just a hole in the ground with a little spot for light. Like just not a great place. But he wants everyone to come to the knowledge of the truth. And so he's willing to suffer everything so that people can know who this Jesus is that has changed his life, that has given him hope and a future. Uh, and so he is he's willing to suffer for that. And he wants Timothy to know that. That's a witness to Timothy there. And so I know if you're looking in your ESV Bible, verse 11 is like the tail end of this paragraph. Um, That next section that's set off like a hymn kind of is like an early creedal statement. So we're going to pause before we dive into that. So verses 8, 9, and 10, comments, thoughts, questions, insights? Anybody? All right. What about uh, verse 8 where he says, my gospel? How are we supposed to... Ah, my, my gospel. That's a good question. So where he says here, let's see, I'm looking for it. Elect, obtain salvation in Christ Jesus. My... What verse are we on? Eight. End of eight. Why am I, oh, my gospel. I don't know why I wasn't saying that. I was going right past it. Yeah, so remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David as preached in my gospel. Paul's not claiming ownership over the gospel here, but as a messenger of Christ, calling out his connection to Christ. And you can even, I would hesitate to use that language. It's the gospel of Jesus, but Paul and we're going to talk about this connection to Christ that we have. And Pastor Wade said something about that in his sermon this morning, this idea of connected in Christ. So he's not claiming ownership over the gospel, but it's a connection to the gospel. And it's something that he's carrying. It's something he was given personally by Jesus to carry out and spread to the nations. And so that's, when I read that, that's what I take from that. Because Paul doesn't ever claim to put himself at the center or take ownership over that. And so it is, it is a bit possessive uh, sounding in our, as we read it and it falls on our ears. Does that help at all? Yes. Absolutely. So is there anything to be uh, read into for the sake of the elect? Mm, man, I knew that one was coming up. <laughs> I saw that word and I said, man, we're going to have a discussion about that. Yeah, so I don't want to dive like too terribly deep into that conversation. Um, but God, I mean, he's talking about those that have been called to faith, right? 
Um, and this is not a double predestination statement um, or anything like that, but he's just calling attention to those that, that are called to the faith or will be called to the faith. Um, that's who he's talking about in that statement, kind of all, all people. He is there bearing witness for that. And during those things, those aspects of suffering in prison for the sake of those that will be called to faith, those that are called to faith. Um, when, when we look at Paul, and he's a very visible person in the early church uh, because of his history, right? As a persecutor and then as the apostle going out there to the Gentiles proclaiming, this is an important witness for him because people are watching. And if, if, if you're all in on a, on a subject topic product in, our, like product in our society is a great example, and then suddenly whatever athlete it is is like, yeah, I don't wear Nikes anymore because I don't like them. Suddenly sales are going to fall, right? And I know that's a trivial example, but Paul's suffering for the sake of the gospel so that that witness can continue on is profound. It's profound for us today, but it's especially profound in his own day where people know the, the history of who this guy is and what he's done against Christians and now know what he's doing for the gospel. So if he turns tail and runs or he recants, that's a pretty big deal. And so this is for all of those people that have been called to faith or will be called to faith, but not a double predestination, not this idea of everybody's, you know, got a place before the foundations of the world type conversation. I see some minds that want to pull on that thread. Any other questions? We have a, have a whole Bible study on that. We'll get uh, Flame to come in here and, and help us unpack all that. So through the Bible... They either say believers mm -hmm. or the elect. Yeah. Why do they differentiate between the two? Why do they use it in the different? I mean, Ooh. so why wouldn't he here say the believers? Because when you get to the elect, it just, right. it just creates so much confusion. I mean, as Lutherans, we understand it, but as right. others that read, even Protestant denominations. Mm. So why do we use different language? That's a great question. And I don't know how to completely answer that question for you. Um, what I would say is that it is by believing in Christ Jesus, right, that one is saved. Believing in his, trusting in his completed work. Um, and so that's something that's given to us by grace through faith, uh, which is a gift from God, right? And so he wills and he weighs and he moves in the hearts of people um, to call them to faith. Now, the blood of Jesus was shed on the cross for all creation, everything. When restoration comes, like everything, all things are made new. Um, but only, not everyone is going to believe in Jesus. There's a lot of people that are going to turn away um, and say, nope, I didn't know him. And then when he comes riding in on the sky, they're going to go, oh no, I missed the boat. And at that point, it's too late. Um, 
But those that are going to be at the wedding feast of the Lamb are those that have called on him and believed. And so I'm not sure quite how to phrase that without getting myself into like theological hot water here. And so I might, I'm, I'm just going to abstain from really fully committing right here. We could have coffee later. I think my feeling with that word elect is mm-hmm. that it's, you are firmly, it's a little stronger word than yeah. believer. To me, mm-hmm. the connotation is the elect is firmly in his grip. Yeah. The idea that no one can take you out of his hand. Yeah. So that's, that's why, that's, that's, to me, that's the difference between yeah. that word and the yeah. believer. Okay. It's a good thought. What else? Chosen. Chosen. All right. What do you got there? Is that the lexicon? The lexicon. Oh, man. Chosen. Chosen. Yeah. So to elect is to choose, right? I would really have to go back in the Greek and unpack that. But we don't, we don't want that right now, right? No? <laughs> yeah. So what I want you to trust in today is that the finished work of Christ is sufficient for you and that you've been called to faith. Um, I remember as a young man wondering, what does it mean? Because they say the one unforgivable sin is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, right? And I can remember saying, well, what, is that? what exactly does that mean? Uh, and I remember my pastor telling me, well, you know, Lawton, if you're actually worried about that, the Holy Spirit's still working in there. Um, and that was a really comforting thought to say that I can wrestle with things, and as long as I'm wrestling, even if it's doubt, from a point of faith, the Holy Spirit's still there. He's doing his thing because, believe it or not, your pastors wrestle with things in God's Word, too. Some passages come up and we're like, I don't really like that. I got to deal with it. I don't really like it. Or, God, how is that possible? How on earth is that possible? It doesn't make sense. And then we try to fit it into our reason and our rationale, and it, doesn't, it just creates a giant mess. And we go, well, you said so, so I'm just going to believe that that's true. Um, and you as believers, called here together, baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, have faith in your hearts the Holy Spirit lives there. And so as you, as you walk through and you read passages like this, know that, like Ruth said, God has his hand on you and doesn't let you go. You can t- choose to walk away from him, but he's not going anywhere. Well, I think part of the focus is on the early, the, just before that, it says, therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect. So if he didn't endure, if he fell away, what a, what a negative thing that would be for the, his followers. Right. Yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it uh, endures all things because he's, he's bearing witness to that, to the truth of the salvation that we have in Christ Jesus. And falling away would mean... So many people would be affected. Yeah, he's, he's got to just lean into the discomfort. Uh, you know, I'm sorry, Paul, that's, that's it. But the beautiful thing is, the joy waiting for us at the resurrection is so much greater 
than we can even imagine. It will eclipse all the suffering of this life, and we won't even remember it. I think that is such a beautiful thing to think that this is just a momentary, a momentary trial. Even though our, our lives here on earth, it seems like a long time sometimes, right? When we have a loved one that's battling cancer or when we have struggles with our family relationships or anything like that, those struggles are real and they're terrible and they are the effects of sin in this world. But when we look at what that is compared to eternity in the presence of God, we know the joy that awaits us, even if we don't know exactly what that looks like yet to be in his full presence for all eternity. Anybody else? No? All right. So 11. Verse 11. The saying is trustworthy. For if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. All right, so there's, there's a, a whole bunch of different things going on in there. That first phrase in there, if we, in, if, uh, if we have died with him, we will also live with him. What does that make you think of? Baptism, right? That's baptismal language. If we die with him, we also will live with him. Uh, and then we, if we endure, we will also reign with him. That's talking about staying in the faith, believing in that completed work. And then we come to this statement of, if we deny him, he also will deny us. Um, what does it mean to deny? And it's something we've talked about several times throughout this morning. It's denying that the finished work of Christ is enough. It's, it's not about whether enough I have enough faith. It's not about whether I've done enough good things that I volunteer enough at church. It's good to volunteer at church. We love having you guys hanging out here. But that's not what salvation's about. That's not our justification is not based on whether we have a strong enough faith or a quantity of enough faith or we've taught Sunday school enough times. That's not what it's about. We are fully justified. Our sins are taken away. We're clothed in Christ's righteousness on account of him and him alone. And that's what, this, that's what it means to deny him is to say, nah, I got a little, I got a little skin in the game here. Um, to not trust that Christ is sufficient. Um, and so, if we deny him, he also will deny us. Because if we deny him, are we connected to Christ? If I walk, he holds on to me. But if I say, Jesus isn't who he says he is, and he didn't do what the Bible says he did, and I walk away, I sever myself from the body. He's still there but I sever myself from the body. And so we get this closing statement here of, for he cannot de deny himself. This idea of being connected in Christ not only connects us as brothers and sisters in Christ, but we are also connected to him. We are, we are united with him, right? And so for him, 
To deny believers that are in him would be for him to deny himself. Because we are united with him. We are connected to him in a real way. He doesn't move, but we can walk away. Um, when, I, when I talk about relationship stuff with my high schoolers, the love of God is such a beautiful picture of that because love is never coercive, right? Love will take care of you, comfort you, protect you, provide for you, be there for you. But love will never hold you from walking away. That's what makes it love. If it was coercive and God said, nope, you can't walk away no matter what, that's not a picture of love. All right. Before we move on, Pastor. Well, first of all, I guess this is a poem, right, from somewhere. A poem, early creedal statement, maybe hymn. We don't really know for sure. But the second part of verse 12, if we deny him, he also will deny us. And I think back to the passion of Christ with Simon Peter. He denied Christ, but what did Christ do? He did not deny him. Yeah. So I can't understand that. Ah. That is, that is true. Peter, Peter denies the rooster crows, and then Jesus reconciles him. Uh, when I think about that, I think about the fact that Jesus hasn't returned yet. Uh, because this is, we're, looking at this, we're looking at this final resurrection, this last day. And when, when Jesus comes back riding on the clouds, those who have denied him, you're, I mean... However you want to phrase it, we, we are living our second chance, so to speak, right now. And so this is, this is when we've been called to faith to believe in him. And the, the neat thing about faith is we can't empirically prove all the things. Um, when Jesus comes riding in on the clouds, there's no doubt, right? That's going to be unlike anything you or I have ever seen before. It would be really neat to be here still when he comes to be able to just witness the power of God, the second person of the Trinity coming right in on the clouds. Um, at that point in time, on that last day, that judgment day, that's when the ones that have denied that Christ is sufficient, that he is who he says he is, that's when he's going to say, I, I didn't know you. And they're going to be cast into that eternal separation, and it's going to be a really awful day and day and week, and month, and year, and millennia, and so on for those, um, which highlights the need for us to be witnesses to Christ as we go throughout our lives, so that those people that we love that, that aren't in the faith, maybe, just maybe the Holy Spirit awakens that in them, and they come to faith. But that's, that's, how, I, that's how I look at that, that statement there, is he's, he's talking about this, this last day, this final resurrection, when Second chance is up. All things are going to be made new um, that last day. And the really neat thing about that resurrection is that is judgment day. But judgment day for those that are in Christ Jesus took place 2,000 years ago on a hill outside of Jerusalem. Because 
the verdict was rendered and the sentence was carried out on Christ Jesus. So for you and I that, that call on him as Lord and Savior on that last day, the only thing to wait for is the open arms as we are welcomed into his presence. The judgment um, of condemnation falls on those outside of that. But for you and I, we look at the cross and the completed work of Christ and we realize that the verdict and the sentence has been carried out. That judgment has been rendered and we have been found righteous on account of Christ. Good question, Pastor Prang. Anybody else? All right, seeing none... Verse 14, remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words which does no good but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. I'm going to pause right there after 14 and 15. So, I have to chuckle when I read not to quarrel about words, because, man, we love to fight about words. Um, this, does not, this is not a statement of no words matter. It's not at all what he's saying. Um, the first thing that comes to my mind here, and I'll apologize in advance if I offend anyone, but all the keyboard warriors on social media, that's the first thing that comes to mind, because so oftentimes what they are fighting about is, A, not fruitful, because I don't know if you've ever like resolved a dispute or brought someone to faith by hammering out keys on Facebook or anything like that. I'm not saying it hasn't happened, I just haven't seen it. Um, but all too often, that's a part of it, right? Or we just fight about things that aren't central to the gospel. Right? Paul is all about delivering the gospel intact. And those are words worth fighting for. Absolutely. But Paul's, Paul's recognizing that in this time, in this area, there's a lot of infighting going on a lot about a lot of stuff that doesn't actually matter. And I want you guys to just let this soak in because we are so so terrible at this today, at fighting over things amongst ourselves that just don't matter. I was listening, um, I was listening to a podcast on this, uh, and he was talking about this specific verse, and he said, I, you know, he was a pastor, and he had a group of guys that met in a coffee shop uh, and talked about stuff, and they'd bring their guitars and sing, and I, it, was, it was a nice little Bible study. Well, one day, Two of the guys are like over in the corner, like having this all out, like vicious debate over Jesus' return, over kind of the revelation stuff. And another guy, not connected to the coffee shop, comes up to this pastor and he goes, I don't really want to be any part of whatever y'all got going on over here because this doesn't sound like the peace that you guys are always singing about. And don't hear me saying that the return of Christ isn't important. I think we should be talking lots about that. I'm just saying the way that we engage one another in conversation about things, we should pay attention to how that happens. In all of our relationships in life, especially in these 
relationships with our brothers and sisters in Christ because that's bearing witness to other people around us, right? How those conversations go. And we can, we can disagree. I'm not saying that we don't have disagreements. I guarantee you, out of all the people in here, I can find as many different disagreements as there are people because that's just who we are. But quarreling about things either in ways that are not glorifying God or about things that just don't actually matter. Paul says, stop it. Stop it. <laughs> because it ruins the hearers. You might not have, this, this pastor that was in that coffee shop got a glimpse of that by this guy coming up and saying, like, I don't know what y'all are doing, but I want any part of it. But how often do we have a conflict and the person just looks at us and like give us a side eye and they walk off and we have no idea the effect that that's had. Um, I love to talk about theology and when, when you're talking theology, inevitably there's differences of opinion about certain things and there's a way to have those debates in a friendly manner where maybe at the end of the debate you're not on the same side of the fence about something. But when... We elevate this to arguing and yelling and treating one another in a way that does not show Christian love and respect is never okay. Um, and uh, we need to be better. So, 15, uh, we'll go back to 15 here. Do, you, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Um, and so, this rightly handling um, is more like a straight cutting. So it's ortho, I forget the, the full Greek word, it's like ortho something. So orthodontist, like straighten your teeth. This is about the distinction of law and gospel, right? Reading God's word and reading through there all of the things that tell us what to do, understanding that we can't do those things, Right? The, word, the, the law of God kills. Right? When we teach confirmation class, there's three uses to the law. Curb, mirror, and guide. Right? The, the curb kind of tries to keep us on track. The mirror is what you look at in the morning and you see first thing in the morning when like, my beard's going all different directions and I'm like, wow, I'm broken. Um, but it's not my beard that's broken. It's it's the sinfulness in my life. The law re lets me recognize the sin in my life, and then the guide helps me and shows me where I'm supposed to go. But in all of that, I can't keep the law of God perfectly. So distinguishing which parts of God's word are law, showing me, yep, you aren't good enough, Lawton, from the gospel. That sweet, sweet word of gospel promise that shows us our Savior, that tells us about what has been done on our behalf. Because the truth of the word of God is that Christ fulfilled the law for us. Where we couldn't succeed, he did on your behalf and on mine. And so rightly handling that so that I don't spend my time convicting you with the law, saying, you've got to keep doing stuff. It's not enough. You've got to keep doing stuff. I can say, this is what God expects of us, and we should strive to live according to the will of God. 
but that's not what saves us and that's not what makes us lovable to God. And so that's that right handling of the word of truth. All right. 16. But avoid irreverent babble. There we go again with talking. It's like we have a real struggle with using our words kindly. Irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. He has a lot to say about this. Like gangrene. Among them, and here he calls a couple of them out, are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. So this is something that they're struggling with, is all these different teachings, right? The gospel has gone out from Jerusalem. Paul's taken it out there with him on these missionary journeys. He's founded churches. And there's false teachers out there. And these two are some of them that's saying, the resurrection's already happened. Jesus already came back. Sorry, you missed the boat. How dangerous is that? I mean, how would you feel if your pastor stood up here and said, yeah, Jesus came back. Sorry, guys. Yeah, just like that, right? You go, man, well, that's terrible. And so a lot more about talk and a lot more, a lot more about staying away from those that are not teaching the truth rightly. It doesn't mean that you can't engage them in conversation, but you're not, you're certainly not um, hanging out with them in a house of worship right? Christ came and ate with sinners. He met them where they were. He didn't leave them there, though. He didn't, you know, what what did he say? Go and sin no more, right? Or he pointed them to the truth. It wasn't that he didn't interact with them at all, but all right. They are upsetting the faith of some. That's how he closes out that. But God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. So Paul's concern, if you looked earlier in this chapter and you see it again here, is the faith of the people. These people that have been called to follow Jesus many of whom may not have met him ever, probably didn't. This is, this is where, where Timothy's at is a long way off from where Jesus was, uh, especially if you have to walk there, right? I mean, even the city of St. Louis is a long way from here if you have to walk here, and it's way closer than Asia Minor is from Jerusalem. Paul's concern is for those, those people. Before we move on from this paragraph, is there any Thoughts, comments? Yes. So do you, do they, have they done any research on exactly what that problem was? In other words, were they pointing to someone that Christ, this is Christ, he's returned? Or was it a false Christ or? That is a great question. I have not read anything uh, that points to a specific person. Um, I'm not saying they haven't, but I haven't seen anything that points to a specific 
like messianic figure, so to speak, but that was not uncommon in that time. Um, There were all kinds of different people that came and said, like, I'm the Messiah, I'm the promised one. And in the ends of the Gospels, when they're talking about, um, when they're talking about how to get rid of Jesus, that conversation even comes up. They're like, hey, these other people have arisen and they've fallen away. So just let it play its course. Because if he's from God, he's going to succeed no matter what. And if he's not, he won't. So I don't, I've not read anything that's pointed to a specific individual, but I do know that, that kind of this rise of messianic figures in that culture um, were, were not uncommon. Um, and so kind of probably similar to those today that predict the end times, right? I, I think I see less of that today than I did when I was a kid. I can just remember it seemed like every few months somebody would be like, so it's going to be on March 21st of next year. And they'd have this whole calculation for when it was, and then March 22nd would come around, and like, okay, I guess that wasn't the day. All right, anybody else? No? Okay. Now, in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, ready for every good work. So this cleansing, this set apart as holy, again, what does that make us think of? Baptism, right? Baptism. Right? We are cleansed in baptism. We are washed. Christ clothes us in his robe of righteousness. Um, and so set apart, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. This is a beautiful statement of our lives as believers. We are cleansed. We are made righteous. Salvation is accomplished. We are fully justified. But that doesn't mean that we just sit back on our laurels and wait for Christ's return. Though nothing that we do contributes to our salvation, in response to the salvation that's been won for us, we get to live our lives as a witness to him uh, because we are his hands and feet in this place. Uh, We are the ones that get to bear witness to all of these people that he causes us to interact with. And so there is good works out there that God has prepared ahead of time for you to do, for me to do. Not to make me, you know, more appealing in his sight, but because he's called us to faith. Because he's saved us uh, from that eternity separated from him in sin. Any comments on that paragraph? Yes, no, maybe so. Seeing no hands, moving forward. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them a repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. So, again, talking about words here, right? 
Uh, and the one thing that I, I love in the statement in verse 25, correcting opponents with gentleness. Uh, and that's kind of back on this words train, right? Words matter and how we interact with one another. We're to correct one another gently. Gently. And we sometimes feel this need to win the argument. And so our, our bodies, our minds tense up. And we speak faster, we speak louder, and then the love in the conversation goes away, and it's all about me being right and you being wrong. I mean, as a parent, I've done that with my own kids. They can, they can attest to that, right? Sometimes I'm not correcting with gentleness. Um, but that's how we're supposed to be interacting with one another. And that doesn't mean that you never raise your voice to your kids. Don't hear me saying that, Right? but that's how we interact. Um, To bring out a quote that I've used before, but I'm going to say it again because it's just one that resonates in my heart daily. Uh, Dr. Kolb at the seminary uh, said, we are called to confess, he is there to convince. And so as we have these theological discussions, as we're trying to correct our brother or sister in Christ, We can correct with gentleness because the burden is not on me to change the heart of that person. I get to confess the truth of Jesus, and the Holy Spirit gets to do what the Holy Spirit does. But the weight of their heart change is not on me. And so I don't need to get worked up and all in a froth about something. And so, correct with gentleness. Gentleness, gentleness. Um, And finally here, uh, God may perhaps grant them repentance. This is a reminder that that call to faith starts with God as the active one, right? He is the one that calls to faith. Repentance flows from that. It's not something that we have someone repents and then suddenly is like, God's like, all right, there's faith in your heart. The call to faith comes from him first. Remember, the language that Paul uses in Romans, we are born dead in our sins and transgressions, necros, which is like a corpse. And a corpse does nothing, right? Repentance is something that's a given from God. God grant them Repentance. That call to faith comes, and then we live these lives of repentance. All right. Any comments, questions in the last minute or two of class? No one brave enough for the microphone at the close? All right. It's good to be here with you. Let's close with a word of prayer, and then next week we'll dive into 2 Timothy 3. Lord God, Heavenly Father, We thank you so much for being in our midst this morning as we dug into your word. I ask that as we go from here today, we would be reminded daily that our salvation is complete in you, that your finished work is enough. It's not about us, it's about you and what you've done for us. And I also ask that you would remind us uh, of our words, Lord, that we would speak to one another 
in gentleness, that we would not quarrel about things that don't matter, Lord, that we would keep our eyes fixed on the gospel, sharing that with all of those whom you put in our paths this week. We ask all this in the name of your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus. Amen. Have a wonderful week, you guys.